2: You've got Dave, the audio producer here for another week. And today we look back, way back to August 2017, to podcast number 105. Pastors Nate and Chris interview none other than theologian, pastor, author, video presenter, Douglas Wilson. I'm sure many more people know
1: about Doug now than five years ago. What Doug says is even more important today. In the studio today, we have Nate and Chris. Nate, how you doing, my friend?
2: Dude, I'm I'm busting at the seams today. I
1: I have to point out you you guys can't see him right now, but I I have known you a long time, and I think I know you pretty well, and I don't think I've ever seen you this excited.
2: You were at my wedding, by the way.
1: I was at his wedding, and I saw you the day of your first child being born, and this is like probably not quite that it's there, level. It's 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 close, but it's close. It's close. So,
2: can I? Tell people were actually doing today
1: yet? Yeah, you, you, you've sat patiently long enough. Why don't you tell our listeners right now what has you literally bouncing in your chair?
2: Doug Wilson. That's what we have. Uh, the, the best guest we could have on this show. I, I, you know what? Honestly, I said this once to you a long time before we even started talking to Doug and trying to get this, uh, this thing set up. If I could spend just an hour, uh, over lunch with somebody and just kind of pick their brain, right? One pastor to another, it'd be Doug Wilson. I, I love this guy. His writing has been so impactful to me. Uh, he's just a, a clear thinker. I love
1: this guy. Yeah. yeah I, I can confess that I don't know how many times we've made jokes or talked about even on this podcast about if you were to be in a room or have a chance to have a a dinner at a table and never once have you failed to say Doug Wilson. Yeah. I remember when we talked about even before the podcast was even a thing and we talked about we would end it if we ever got to the point where Doug Wilson would join us on the podcast. Just mic
2: drop and walk home.
1: Now we're not going to be faithful to that (laughs) because we're going to put out more content. but. We could walk away at this point because it's not going to get any better than this episode.
2: Yeah, yeah. So here we go. We we have uh, Doug Wilson. Uh, he's coming on and he's going to talk to us about cultural engagement, uh, something that we're super passionate about here. We're here to equip Christians to engage culture with a biblical worldview. And uh, and who better to help us navigate that than, than Doug Wilson? So uh, here we go. Uh, we hope you enjoy Doug Wilson. Yeah. Well, we are so thrilled to be on with Pastor Doug Wilson from uh, Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, and senior fellow, is that the the right title, from uh, New St. Andrews College? Yeah. So thanks so much for being with us today, Doug. Happy to be with you. Our podcast is really uh, trying to help equip Christians to engage culture with a biblical worldview. So we're thrilled to have you on, and we'd love to kind of ask you some questions about how Christians can go about doing that. What does cultural engagement look like? So we wanted to talk, first and foremost, some of our listeners might be familiar with this phrase or this term, and some, some might not, but uh, the, the term two-kingdom theology, right? This idea that there's separate realms between what's secular and what's sacred. Uh, do you want to just kind of define that really quickly, just so we're, we understand where we're kind of coming to this conversation from?
0: Sure. Two-kingdom theology as people refer to it today, is largely identified with the outlook of Westminster West in Escondido, California. And the idea is that there's the kingdom of the church, where Jesus is explicitly the head, explicitly the king. And then there's the secular realm, where he need not be confessed or acknowledged. Now, they're Calvinists, so they believe that God runs everything, but you don't need to name the name of Christ out in the secular realm. In fact, you better not. They believe that the secular space should be secular. They want to argue for secularism out there. And this is a distortion of what the Reformers meant by two-kingdom theology. What the Reformers were referring to was the external visible kingdom of Christ, Christendom, right. which included the church and the civil society and and so on. And then there was the invisible internal kingdom also all across the waterfront. The heart of the king, the heart of the bishop, the heart of the pastor, the heart of the right. congregation and so on. That's the invisible kingdom. Right. So being a historic Protestant, I hold the two kingdom theology, but I don't hold to the modern escondido variation on it.
2: Right. So you would say that because Christ is, is king of heaven and earth, the Bible has something to say in the church and outside the church to both the, the politician and the pastor.
0: Correct. So in the Great Commission, Jesus prefaces it with All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he says, therefore, go. It's important for us to note that the command is to therefore go, not to simply go. Right. We have to go with the understanding that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And we go out to preach him, to proclaim him. And that means naming him.
1: So, Doug, how would you say that relates to culture? And how would you define culture from a biblical standpoint?
0: Henry Van Til wrote a book in which he said, culture is religion externalized. So when you have a group of people with a certain set of basic faith commitments, those faith commitments could be Marxist, they could be Islamic, they could be secular agnostic. Culture is how those shared assumptions will instantiate themselves in the external world. What's the public square going to look like when 500,000 people who are Muslims, Go live on an island together. What's their public square going to look like? Well, that's what culture is. What will their movies be like? What will their stories be like? What will their worship be like? What will their celebrations be like? So culture is the externalization, the hardening of the internal faith commitments of a people.
2: So essentially, because everybody has a worldview from which they operate, what you're essentially saying is that regardless of what those internal beliefs are, culture is just the playing out of what everybody is believing internally. Correct. Right.
0: There's certain things that you can say and do in New York City that you can't say and do in Mecca. Right. There's certain things you can say and do in Mecca that you can't say and do in Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> you know, And those things are the shared cultural externalization of the faith of the people generally. Right.
1: Help us unpack that a little bit. So what would you say culture engagement looks like to just the everyday regular person in your church, in the pews, or if you're a hipster, in the fancy chairs?
0: (laughs) So that's like asking, what does World War II look like, right? Well... Are you a general? Are you a private? Right. Are you in the supply corps? What's your role? You've got this huge war going on involving millions of people and continents and nations. And then you've got your post, your platoon, your regiment. So what faithfulness looks like if you're on a PT boat in the Pacific and if you're on a beach in Normandy and if you're a bomber pilot, it looks like doing your duty. It looks like doing your duty at your station. So I would say cultural engagement for a dentist looks different than it does for a preacher, than it does for a truck driver, than it, you know. So cultural engagement is all across the waterfront. And that means, of course, the basics are there. Love God, worship God regularly, be honest in your dealings, shine a light for the non-believers around you to see, et cetera. But if you're reformed and covenantal, you have to recognize that you have to do more than just keeping your own nose ethically clean. There's going to be a point where our faith in Christ is going to impact how the dentistry is done, how the concrete pour is done. In Christianized cultures, for example, you put rebar in the concrete so the earthquake doesn't knock the building down. And someone says, well, come on, that's just common sense. Well, How many people build buildings in earthquake-prone areas of the world without any rebar in the concrete? Right. (laughs) Lots of them. Yeah. And that is an example of how the worldview, how the faith works out into the culture.
2: That's really helpful, and there's a quote from your book, Rules for Reformers, that I would just recommend that to any Christian who cares about culture and cares about what cultural engagement looks like at their level, whether they're a private or a general, as you said. Uh, It's a great book for that, and one of the quotes that kind of stood out to me that I wanted to ask you about is you said, We should look for a way to stop responding to the initiatives of the adversary and start behaving in such a way that they have to figure us out or how to respond to us. Uh, can you unpack that a little bit and maybe give us an example of what that looks like kind of in the various stations of this war?
0: Sure. If you're playing a football game, you can't score unless you've got the ball.
2: Right. You've got to have the ball to score. And that means that that works for hockey up here in Canada, too. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just for our listeners.
0: A, except that it's not a ball. Right. right, right fair fair enough, no, no. It's
2: not a
1: sport either, though, <laughs> Doug. So, so. Well.
0: So. So. Either the defense has to take the ball away and score with it, or you have to run the offense. And the point I'm making here is best illustrated by something that the U.S. Defense Secretary recently said, General Mattis, who was asked in an interview, thinking about the threats confronting our country, he was asked, what keeps you up at night? And he says, nothing. My job is to keep other people up at night. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay. I don't want to spend all my time worrying about what are they going to do. I want them up at night worrying, what am I going to do? Yeah. Right? And that's just another way of saying that he understands that he has to be on the offense. Right. That's a political foreign policy illustration from this world. But Christians need to learn the, to think the same way. Why are we always worried about what the secularists are going to do to us next? Why aren't they worried about what we're going to do to them next? Right. Well, it's because we're used to playing defense. We play defense, we play defense. And then if someone recovers a fumble, nobody knows what to do.
2: Yeah, that's true. That's exactly right. Yeah. Which ties into eschatology. Right. Let's talk a little bit about eschatology then, Doug. You're among friends here. And I often quote you when... That's a nice feeling. (laughs) It is. And it's a rare feeling, unfortunately, in our current Christian landscape. But I often quote you when you said you hit what you aim at. And so in terms of the culture war, in terms of Christians wanting to play offense, like you're saying, because right now it seems like cultural engagement just looks like scanning the box office for the the most recent movie that kind of uh, offends us as Christians and and calling out the gay beauty and the beast character and, and this sort of thing, which is all reactionary. It's all defense. So what part does eschatology play then in helping Christians play offense?
0: eschatology can be summed up into the two basic approaches and I'm quoting a line from Gary North many years ago he said there's basically two views there's pessimillennialism and optimillennialism right (laughs) Uh, and pessimillennialism says that it doesn't much matter what we do we're going to lose anyway it's all going to burn man it's all going down look at this the devil took over something else here we are right on schedule
2: right that why Paul brass on a sinking ship mentality.
0: So if you've ever had the misfortune of playing on a sports team that was convinced going into the game that they were going to lose, well, that's like giving the opponent 10 points right off the bat. You need to play to win. And you can't play to win if you have an eschatology that says, by definition, we can't win. By definition, not only is the devil against us, but so are all the holy prophets, you know. (laughs) then you play that way. You play with that in mind. And guess what? You hit what you aim at. Right. You aim at retreat. You aim at loss. You aim at trying to minimize your losses. That's what you eke out. If you read the scriptures, as I'm convinced a straightforward reading of the scriptures does, and we sum it up as we win, they lose. The earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen. The Great Commission will be successfully fulfilled. All the nations will turn and come to Christ. All the nations will be discipled. This planet is going to be a Christian planet. This world is going to be a Christian world prior to the second coming of Christ. Now, if you believe that that's what the prophets were talking about, if you believe that that's what the apostles were prophesying and laying out for us, and I could multiply scores of passages where they say precisely that, then you're going to labor and pray and work With that end in view And you're going to become scary To the enemy You're going to become scary to the adversary And they're going to freak out And they're going to start throwing Pointed, large, jagged pointed objects At your head to shut you down And that's one of the reasons Why Christians don't do it
2: Yeah. It's funny how often you see this in how we combat abortion or same sex mirage or any of those kinds of things. We we kind of hold our picket signs, but you see a lot of Christians who they just don't actually believe that abortion can be abolished on earth. They just don't believe it. And so their strategies going into that fight look much different than somebody who thinks it's only a matter of time.
0: Yeah, and if you ask them, so do you think that the person who wanted to abolish slavery or when Wilberforce was up against the slave trade, and it looked like that was an unwinnable battle? He was up against all the established powers in the British Empire at that time. Right. His battle was unwinnable. Are you saying, this person you're talking to today, that he should have given up? Right. Is that what you're saying? No. What we do is we praise him. Why do we praise him? Why do we write biographies about him? Why do we make movies about him? Well, because he's dead. (laughs) if anybody is behaving like he and jesus refers to this where he says you build the tombs of the prophets you decorate the tombs of the prophets evangelicals name their publishing houses after john knox and after tyndall and after all these people and we
2: name our colleges after them we do everything except imitate them yeah and forget how messy it looked in the midst of it oh yeah yeah yeah
0: I think he was the head of Texas Instruments. I forgot his name. But he said nothing was ever accomplished by a reasonable man.
2: Yeah, that's right.
0: I think that that's very true. What does faith do? What is it that overcomes the world, John says? Is it not our faith? Mm. What is faith? It's the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Right. So when people just go on the basis of what they see on the evening news— or what they read in the newspapers, or what they read on the Drudge Report, that's going by sight. But we're Christians, we're to walk by faith, not by sight. We're to go by the word, we're to go by scripture, and not by the lies the devil is currently telling us.
2: Amen. So this kind of leads into another area of rules for reformers that I wanted to ask you about. And in that book, you use this phrase, the decisive point. And you talk about areas of culture and even geography And the decisive point, I think you define as a place that's worth taking. It has some level of significance, but it's insignificant enough to the enemy that you can actually take it. Just kind of unpack that a little bit and maybe talk to us about what some decisive points are in culture before us now.
0: All right. And I'll just begin with size, for example. In order to be a decisive point, a target, well, I need to back up. Back in the 60s, my dad, who was a Naval Academy graduate and went through the Naval War College, wrote a small book on strategic evangelism. It's called Principles of War. And what he did is he took all the principles of military warfare, mobility, surprise, objective, concentration, all the principles, not the technology, not the weaponry, not the tactics, but rather strategic thinking. And he applied them to evangelism. And that's where I learned this idea of the decisive point from my dad. And so a target to be a decisive point has to be simultaneously strategic and feasible. So if I said, hey, I've got an idea. Let's win North America back for Jesus Christ. Let's target New York City. Well, New York City is strategic. If we took New York City, it'd be over. Right. right? We we win won. Yeah. It's strategic, but it's not feasible because it's well defended. It, that's their, that's that's their, their stronghold. stronghold. Yeah. On the other hand, I could round up a, two or three Christian families and we could move out to Boville, Idaho, which is a little bit east of here, it's a bend in the road, and we could take it for Jesus in three weeks, two weeks. Well as soon as the trucks were on there. <laughs> and so Boville, Idaho is feasible, but it's not strategic. When we were all done, all we'd have is Boville. Idaho right so in order to be a decisive point a target has to be simultaneously strategic and feasible right and my dad decided back in the late 60s early 70s that in North America the decisive points were major universities in small towns so if you have a small town with a major university in it the university makes it important and the small town makes it feasible right and then he found out that Moscow Idaho has a university here. Moscow is like 20,000 people. Half of that is the University of Idaho. And then eight miles across the line is Pullman, Washington with WSU, Washington State University there. So he, he found out there was two small towns, eight miles apart with two major universities. And so he packed up and moved here. So let's move to a decisive point. And he started a bookstore, literature, ministry, outreach, evangelism, and so forth. But everything that has cascaded out of Moscow since that time is the result of that one decision. And uh, there's a publishing house here, a Christian college, a through K-12 classical Christian school, multiple church services, and the name of the game is disproportionate impact. Right. How to have a disproportionate impact. Now, this view does not say ignore New York City, but what it does say is if God has called you to New York City, you should look around at the city and say, where are the decisive points here? Right. right? New York is too big a castle to be a decisive point by itself so if you're in New York City you have to decide what the decisive points are there so that's just one example small towns and a major university to flip it around to the non-believers there was a, a Marxist named Gramsci there were two schools of thought among the Marxists the Leninists who wanted to bring in the revolution by violence by overthrowing the powers and then Gramsci referred to what he called the long march through the institutions the long march through the institutions and what he was doing was he was picking the decisive point in western culture and western civilization he said pretend that western civilization is a body a human body and pretend that you're cancer and then go for the lymph nodes Right. That's, that's what we're talking about right. and so consequently the secularist the, the secular socialist leftist progressives are overwhelmingly dominant in media, in entertainment, in the news, in higher education. What did they do? They went after the decisive points, while Christians in red state America were busy just minding their own business, running their own shop, not thinking strategically.
2: So I guess then the question is, the decisive point might be easier for, for a pastor to grasp as he's thinking about where to plant a church. But for the everyday Christian, kind of what I'm hearing you say is, is number one, every aspect of our lives ought to be strategic, right? So where you live within your community, you know, next to a community center or next to a school or, or something like that. Are there any kind of practical things that you tell your people in your congregation? What are the decisive points that you can see in your life?
0: Basically, the one thing I would say to our people, our average parishioners, our congregants, if someone were to ask me and say, what can I do to fit with the larger strategic vision that you have? What can I do? My answer would be this. Let me give you an illustration from my dad's book, Principles of War. He said, suppose you had a faithful soldier pinned down by enemy fire on Normandy Beach, and he's having trouble making it to the top of the next sand dune. He's pinned down. And then he said, now make this illustration ludicrous. Let's say a page out of General Eisenhower's notebook blows down the beach. And it lands on the soldier's chest. And he looks at it. And the order is to establish a beachhead and take Berlin. And he <laughs> thinks to himself, how can I take Berlin? I can't even take the stupid sand dune in front of me. What do you mean telling me to take Berlin? Well, no, we didn't tell you to take Berlin. We told Eisenhower to take Berlin. And you're part is to be faithful at your part. Right. So if someone came to me and said, what's my part? I'm just a regular guy. I've got my kids in the Christian school here. I've got a regular job. I like my job. My family's great. How can I fit into this strategic vision that you have? I would say, so you just moved here, right? Yeah. Been here six months. You're still renting, right? Yeah. You're going to buy a house? Yeah. I'd say, look where everybody in the church lives buy a house right in the middle of where a cluster of some of the saints live, live next to them, and cultivate community. Love one another. Have your kids play with each other. Borrow one another's lawnmowers. You know, work your problems out when you have them. Learn to live in community. So that's the single biggest word I hear. In our secular dystopia, the thing that's missing is community. Right. And people try to manufacture it by having a gay community, by having a ham radio community. Well, you can't have true cultures. You can have hobbyist clubs, but not community. You can only have community if you have a culture and the culture is the externalization of a religion, shared worship. Right. So I would tell our people, look, worship together, love each other, be involved in one another's lives. A number of years ago, there was a woman who worked at our local Macy's, and she came to church one time because of all the Christians. They were getting married and were coming in to register, and she was so impressed with the quality or the caliber of the people who were coming in. To re- and where do these people go to church? What's funny about them? And she came to church and then was bowled over at church because men were singing. Right. Uh, <laughs> like, what? On what, <laughs> Where are we? What, what, yeah. Do I I need to lie down? So basically, if you build community, I think it was Spurgeon who said, if the church catches fire, the world will come to watch it burn. Mm. That is attractive. And I think that that's what we need to do. Love one another. Work with each other.
1: Build community. Doug, you you rip off in a good way the progressive bumper sticker, think globally, act locally. When you say think cosmically and act locally, what does that look like? So flush it out for us a little bit.
0: Okay, when I say think cosmically, I don't mean think like a new ager. I I mean, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I'm glad we cleared that up. I mean that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In Daniel seven, Jesus comes into the throne room of the Ancient of Days, and he approaches the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives him universal dominion over every nation, tribe, language, people, if it's moving around, Jesus is the king of it. I don't know of any doctrine that is more plainly or bluntly stated who is the God of this world. Most Christians today will say the devil. Right. And I'd say, I think we've identified the problem. (laughs) Right? Yeah, absolutely. Jesus is the God of this world. Right? With his blood he purchased in Hebrews that by his death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. What did Jesus do about his death? He destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus triumphed over the principalities and powers, it says, in Colossians. So you have the very plain, blunt teaching that Jesus is the king of all of it. And Paul says in Colossians 3, set your minds on things above, where Christ is. If you do that, you're thinking cosmically. Jesus is Lord of the cosmos. And that's the fundamental Christian confession. Jesus is Lord. But if someone says, Lord of what? You need to say, Lord of more than my heart. He is the Lord of your heart, but he's the Lord of the cosmos. So then think cosmically, realize that you can't have too exalted a view of Jesus Christ, and then act locally in traffic, when you're talking to your kid, when you're reading a bedtime story, when you're mowing the lawn, do so in light of the Lordship of Jesus Christ over everything.
2: You're so right when you think about how most Christians would answer the question, you know, who's Lord of the earth? We are so quick to attribute that to Satan. And we forget that, you know, the story in Matthew 12 is that Jesus came to bind up the strong man so that we could plunder his house. Right. That's the narrative that we're living in now. And yet we're so quick to say, well, you know, Satan's God of this world. And no wonder, no wonder we don't think that we can change culture. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. Right. <laughs> and left the windows and doors open so we could take the rest. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. In the book that we've mentioned, Rules for Reformers, and also in uh, your more recent book, Empires of Dirt, you use this phrase, and it's one of my favorite quotes of yours. You say, desperate times call for faithful men and not for careful men. And the careful men come later and they write the biographies of the faithful men lauding them for their courage. So in all of this, in this building community, in living in light of the cosmic lordship of Christ and all this kind of stuff, what kind of courage is called for to live where we are and when we are?
0: Yeah, Jesus gives us some cautions. He says, beware when all men speak well of you. Jesus tells us when everybody thinks you're great, when your testimony is wonderful, you should have an ominous feeling. Jesus says you should be nervous when you have a great testimony. We have a weekly Sabbath dinner at our house where my kids and their kids and my, my dad comes over and we have a big Sabbath dinner preparing for the Lord's Day the next day. And we were sitting around at Sabbath dinner. My dad, who's going to be 90 this fall, this was a year or two ago, said, no sense dying with a good reputation. And, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and my daughter said, so you, you think you've got a good reputation, Grandpa? And he said, better than it ought to be. Hmm. Right? We think just automatically, instinctively, that if someone says something negative about us, we did something wrong. Right. It's got to be true. Right. There's got We've got to fix it. That's just how we roll. But Jesus says, beware when all men speak well of you. And Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you want to be all in for Jesus, you are going to catch it. And then Jesus yeah. says, when men... Revile you and despitefully use you and say all manner of wicked things about you He says in effect, I want you to go around the corner and dance a little jig right? I want you to go, yes, yes Because Jesus says literally rejoice and be exceedingly glad Rejoice and be exceedingly glad because that's how they treated the prophets There's an old blue song that says everybody wants to go to heaven But nobody wants to die yeah. That's the problem. Everybody thinks, wouldn't it be grand if I had a memorial built to me? Wouldn't it be grand if I had a statue? Wouldn't it be grand if biographies were written about me in generations to come? But then they don't do anything remotely approaching what is necessary to have a biography written about you. Because right. you have to risk. You have to yeah. take risks. Jesus hammers away at this. The parable of the talents. What happens to the servant who said, You're a hard master, and so I'm going to go bury my one talent and then bring it back to you and, and give it to you? And Jesus says, You wicked, you know, you yeah. wicked, non risk taking servant. Uh, wasn't he playing it safe? Yeah, but Jesus didn't tell us to play it safe. One of the books I'd recommend in this regard is my son's book, Notes from the Tilted World, is yes. uh, uh, all about this. How can you live on the edge in a responsible, godly, Christian way? Well, what risks are you taking? It's, it's another inescapable concept. It's not whether you take risks, it's what risks you take. If you bury your one talent, you're taking a risk, and that's the wrong one. Yeah. You're risking the wrath right. of the master. So
2: life is risky, you can't it, fix it. And this kind of comes back to what you said about William Wilberforce, right? So th- this idea that we all want biographies written about us, but none of us want to live in the mess. And when you think back to whether it's the Reformation or William Wilberforce or or many of the kind of really highlight reels, the Great Awakening, these sorts of things, they look great in hindsight. But in the middle of it, it looks like a a big old mess and nobody really knows whether or not they're going to get a monument built. Yeah.
0: And from all appearances, you're not going to have a monument built. You're going to be hung by the neck until dead. So when you look at what Luther thought was actually going on, how did Luther feel in the midst of it? Well, he thought his life was not worth very much, which was exactly right. And it could have gone any number of places. It could have gone either way. That's how God writes his story. We want to improve the Lord of the Rings by taking the Nazgul out and then taking Gollum out and then taking Sauron out and then taking that scary eye out and then taking Mount. And then we have a book at the end. Once upon a time, there were some hobbits standing in a meadow and it was time for lunch.
1: (laughs) So in terms of like being courageous and, and things like that, some of our listeners aren't pastors. They're not people who are able to take those huge risks, like go up against abortion and whatnot. But if, how does like a, a normal Christian in the workplace take a risk, be courageous for their faith? Help our listeners see okay, that.
0: Okay, here's a test case. It's rainbow day at your big corporation, and you don't put a little rainbow flag on your desk. No right? No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to stand on my chair and yell at everybody, but no, I'm not going to do that. Well, we are rapidly approaching the point where acts of quiet courage are going to be required all across the front of the line. And I think it's quite telling that most of the Supreme Court cases here in the States are bubbling up from simple Christian florists and T-shirt printers, and they're simple Christian people who won't bend. And it's quite striking to me that I think in this case, the sheep are being a lot more faithful than the shepherds. We've got some faithful shepherds, thank God. We've got some people taking risks and who are out there, but the rank and file Christians are risking their livelihoods. I want to be careful because I'm I'm not trying to disparage motives here. If you're a culture warrior, if you're a leader, if if you're in the position that I'm in, let's say, and I'm out leading the charge and articulating these things, it's not so much that I'm risking my livelihood. That is my livelihood. The people who are risking their livelihood are the people who arrange flowers for a living or the wedding photographer. That's their livelihood. That's what they know how to do. That's how they feed their family. And that's what they bet. That's what they're risking. They're risking their livelihood and Christian defense organizations and thank God for them. If I'm a culture warrior, I'm just saying this is a necessary thing. But part of the necessity is for leaders to every 15 minutes check their motives because fighting the secularists is for the top tier leadership, that is their livelihood. That is their bread and butter. That is how they raise money. Yeah. Okay. That's not the case
2: for the people who are perhaps going to lose it all. So you're talking about the florists and the bakers and all these kind of people making their small, silent acts of courage. And I think one of the things that we maybe need to remember is that nobody thinks they're going to change the world by their small act of obedience. But if this thing is happening on a large scale. And there's florists and and wedding photographers and bakers all over the nation who are making these stands. That's how culture slowly starts to change. It's not an individual thing. Correct.
0: And if I could quote one of my favorite humorists is PGA O'Rourke once said, everybody wants to save the world, but nobody wants to help mom with the dishes.
2: Right,
0: (laughs) yeah. Okay, and that's where we need to engage. What is within my radius? What can I reach? what could I do? And if someone says, what can I do? I'd say, I don't know. What can you do? How far can you reach? Right. What are your resources? That's right. What are your time? That's right. How much time do you have? Then don't be reluctant to give that. Remember, Jesus praised the widow who gave the two mites. If you've got two mites to give, then that's what you give. If that's all you've got, then that's what you leave right. out there. He who is faithful in yeah. little will be made faithful over much.
2: In Empires of Dirt, you argue that the Christian's endgame for cultural engagement is a mere Christendom. You kind of talk about this as this is a public official acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as King with both politicians ruling in light of it and citizens living under it. So if that's where we're moving, and it seems to me like one of the things you're saying is that all of these small faithfulness and within your sphere is your, you know, each private, each, each person in the military, that's their duty, but there's this bigger game going on. So I guess my question is what last bit of advice would you have for all of our listeners who file into different areas in this large scale war? What are we all looking towards and how does that help us get there? When I was in the Navy, I was in the submarine service. So I'll take an illustration from there. On a ship,
0: you've got all different job descriptions. You've got a guy who's in the galley as the cook. You've got a torpedo man. You've got a, a, a sonar And you've got all these people doing different things. If you ask the cook making eggs in the morning, what are you doing? He would say, I'm fighting the war. I'm feeding the sailors who are fighting the war. I'm, I'm part of the war effort, right? He understands the teleology mm-hmm. of the submarine. The submarine is part of a fleet, the fleet is, is part of an armed force, the armed force is going against the enemy, and he does his share. He, and he doesn't feel bad about cooking the eggs. He's doing his bit. But he's able to not feel bad about it because he connects the two in his thinking. So That's right. when one Christian That's goes to work as a dentist and someone else is an attorney, someone else works at a bank, someone else is a barista, they're all doing their thing. They scatter into the world. One of the best things in the world is for all of them to be thinking the reason we're here, the point of our engagement in this culture is to bring the nations to Christ, is to have mm-hmm. his rule manifest. And so... I don't need to make it manifest at Starbucks where I work by the middle of the afternoon today. But I need to be in my prayers and my thoughts, be thinking regularly about how it's going to be manifest here one day. I know that because that's what the Bible promises and we live by hope, we live by faith, we look forward to these things and you've got a reason for living, you've got a reason for functioning. So when I was in the Navy, I I used to say I was a quartermaster, which meant that I was in the navigation department and we plotted dots. We figured out where we were and it was my job to figure out, and put on the chart where we were and where we're going to be and all of that. And I remember saying things to friends like, the Navy thinks I'm here to plot dots. That's why they think I'm here. But that's not why I'm here. There's a larger point, there's a larger purpose. So someone says, the the, uh, world thinks I'm here to cut hair. The world thinks that I'm here to maintain everybody's lawns and shrubs. No, you're here to be a light for Jesus Christ, to worship him, to feed your family, to shine the light of Christ on everyone you encounter. And if you have that kind of long-term eschatology, it's going to feed your soul as well.
2: Right. And I guess that brings us full circle in that each Christian living in light of that, talk about being light of the world, being salt uh, on the earth, but this is Wherever you are, whether you're cutting hair, whether you're a barista, you living and allowing your inner religion, right, your inner worldview become externalized and changing the culture around you and that happening on a large scale, that's what changes culture that's what changes culture right amen that's awesome you know we didn't put this down on some of the questions that we were going to ask you but i think we'd get in trouble from our listeners if we didn't ask you i know you're a, a literature fan uh, we know you love narnia we, we know you love middle earth and i even know you're a sci-fi fan because i know you love uh, c.s lewis's space trilogy right so tell me about star wars i've never heard you say anything about star wars i gotta know are you a star wars fan
0: I don't think fan is the right word. <laughs> I back in 1980 or whenever it was, I remember going to the first one with Nancy. Nancy and I are not big movie people. Okay. So we watch an occasional movie, but we're not big in the movies. But I remember going to the first one, and that might be the only one I've ever seen. Wow. If I saw another one, I don't remember it. I've got a vague, nebulous understanding of some of the
2: characters – Maybe I saw another one, but I don't recall. But I remember seeing the first one. That's something. But I'm starting to understand why they say never meet your heroes, Pastor Doug. (laughs) I I got to say. I got to say. All right. Well, I look forward to the day when somebody sits down and introduces you to the world of Star Wars because it's going to bring a whole new life of illustrations into your ministry. Okay. All right. So <laughs> so we just want to thank you so much for being with us, uh, Pastor Doug. Thanks for giving us your time. Uh, this has been fantastic. And I'm getting more insight into the name Plodcast for your podcast as you were talking about uh, your job in the Navy. So I- I'm starting to understand that a little bit more. And new episodes drop on Tuesdays. Is that correct? That is correct. So, Plodcast, and that's available on iTunes or any podcast catcher. So, thanks so much for being with us, Pastor Doug. And anything you wanted to say, I feel like I stole a lot of his time.
1: No, no, no. I just want to say thank you again for your ministry. I know it's tremendously blessed our pastor, my life as well. Thank you for your books, and just we'll continue to pray for me from a distance.
0: Thank you, thank you. Thanks for paying attention.
1: (laughs) Anytime. Take care. Bye.
2: All right, Chris. We've just had our minds
1: blown. Yes. My mind, my brain is actually sore from how awesome that was.
2: Yeah, man. Uh, we're, we're so thankful for Doug. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and, uh, and just a shout out to, uh, some of, uh, the administrators, uh, that, uh, that he has working for him that helped, uh, get him on there. That was a, a real joy to work with them. Uh, but man so practical so much wisdom there uh we 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 really hope that you are as blessed by that as we were um so thanks so much doug for for being on the show uh thanks uh, to all the listeners and uh and this i we hope that you share this out this is uh this is kind of a high point for the rebels so uh take this and and tweet it out uh put it on facebook share this link uh do what you can do to get that uh that episode in front of people or into people's earbuds because uh, because that was awesome. There's a lot of really great stuff there and uh, and nothing else that we can say is really <laughs> really yeah. going to improve upon what Doug just uh, dropped on us.
1: No, just again, thank you to Mr. Wilson for being humble and coming onto a podcast up in Canada yeah. to talk about how to engage culture. and as
2: much as we love Star Wars we still love Doug Wilson despite the fact that he doesn't love Star Wars as much as we do his mind is just too full of awesomeness (laughs) yeah he doesn't have any more room
1: he has no more room yeah
2: so um, right, that's uh, that's all we got for you today Uh, we actually have uh, a bunch of uh, great guests lined up in the next couple of weeks so we have people in the studio for the next few episodes Uh, look forward to uh, hearing from them and uh, we look forward to having you back thanks so much for joining us